And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on. And Formula One bid farewell to four-times world champion Sebastian Vettel in the final race of the 2022 season in Abu Dhabi. We reflect on his impact on F1, why his final farewell was such a seismic moment, and where he stands among the greats. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to tackle those questions and more are Scott Mitchell-Malm and special guest Lee McKenzie. Well, I'm sure that Lee needs no introduction, but tradition does dictate that a special guest has to have one. Lee is a hugely accomplished sports broadcaster and journalist in F1 and beyond. You'll have seen her interviewing many an F1 driver, playing a big part in both the BBC and Channel 4's coverage, presenting the Olympics, interviewing players on the court at Wimbledon, and indeed turning up in all sorts of other sports. And now she's also an author with the release of Inside F1, available at all bookshops right now. So welcome to the Race F1 podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, essentially, what you've just said is that I have bothered athletes around the world, like it or not, for a very long time. I think that's probably how you sum up my job. That is exactly the task, isn't it? The more you bother them, the better. Got to try and get some uh, some good stuff out of them. But occasionally they welcome the uh, the, the post-match interview, as, as it were. But obviously your book, Inside F1, it's your own personal F1 story, but very much told through the prism of the careers of the great drivers you crossed paths with on a regular basis. So was that an enjoyable writing process? Yeah, it's a funny thing. I'd never written a book before. Um, I'm not sure if I'll do another one. I enjoyed the writing process and I loved going through all my old interviews to tell the stories of the careers of these seven drivers. Uh, and then you have to hand it over to someone. And I wasn't really good with that. I must be a control freak. Um, but as soon as you feel like you've lost all control by that point. Um, but I had been asked to write a book um, about myself, which would I would never do because I'm too private and also it would be inherently dull. Um, and for me, working in sport and what I love particularly about Formula One is um, the stories, the madness that we all get to see, uh, the cars, the drivers. They are the sparkle 
and we just happen to be going along with that. Um, and Formula One, as we know, is hugely popular at the moment. But when you look into the world of uh, these programs that are out there about Formula One, they don't actually give any context or backstory. So, you know, if you're new to this, you think that Formula One started when Lando Norris turned up. You would think that Seb was a bad driver with, you know, dodgy hair. You wouldn't remember necessarily he was a four-time world champion if you're only judging it on, you know, the last few years of a drive to survive. And, and for me... You know, if a miracle had happened and Seb had won the last race in Abu Dhabi or Fernando goes on and wins races next year, to know why that is so special, you've got to know where they've come from from and what they've gone through to be there. So I always try and do that in my interviews anyway. I love the human side. I love what makes these drivers, athletes, tennis players, rugby players. I like what makes them tick, how they started, their personalities, what makes them them at that given moment, whether they're winning or losing. And hopefully that's um, what comes out in the book, uh, albeit told through sort of moments of madness of me taking horses from the UK over to Michael Schumacher's yard and, and, and weird experiences that you find yourself in when you're on TV. I must admit, that was one of the stories that stood out to me. And it, the book's full of them. Obviously, there's a chapter on Sebastian Vettel, which is one of the reasons we've got you on the podcast. Michael Schumacher, Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, Fernando Alonso, Felipe Massa, Jensen Button. And obviously, your story weaves uh, through that. And you do also claim at the start of your chapter on Sebastian Vettel, there's no one in F1 you've interviewed more than Sebastian Vettel. So that's your qualification for this podcast. Thank you. I knew it, had, I knew it would take me somewhere. And if it's on this podcast, then I'm delighted with that. <laughs> a slightly disappointing outcome I'm sure there's uh, there's greater places that the book will lead you on to and, and Scott Mitchell well no book writing for you so have you got anything remotely interesting to talk about uh, well I hope so otherwise I'm going to pale in comparison to the quality of the rest of this podcast um, obviously we've uh, we've talked about Sebastian quite a lot over the last well two or three years since we've been doing this podcast he's sort of cropped up in various forms hasn't he from the from the the need to um rebuild himself in that final year at Ferrari to never really getting a chance to do that because COVID changed the the landscape a little bit. Um, By the time we saw him race in Formula One after we started the race, Sebastian was already confirmed as on his way out of Ferrari. So that, that was an interesting sort of part of his career. We've 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 been there obviously in this form for the for the tail end of his career, but I think we've also in doing so seen the very best of him as a person shine through in a Formula One context. Um, so it's been really really interesting the last two or three years seeing a very different side to Sebastian that I saw when I was watching Formula One initially as a fan, and then obviously on the periphery of Formula One as a journalist, and then working full time in Formula One. So there's. There's a lot to say about Sebastian. He's a he's a guy with uh, with a lot of layers to him. So hopefully we can um, get into that quite nicely on this podcast. Yeah, very much so. He's a driver whose story and the public perception has evolved a lot over the years. So I guess the place we should start, Lee, is his farewell in Abu Dhabi. His goodbye was the big story of the weekend. I don't think a driver finishing 10th has ever been the focus of so much attention. So what does that say about Sebastian Vettel? Well, for me, it wasn't just what happened on the Sunday. This has been like a long goodbye um, from the Thursday and all these things that he said he wasn't sure if he wanted and then he's organising track runs and everyone's wearing his t-shirts and the whole thing just seemed to keep growing and growing uh, to the point that I was wondering where his emotions would be before he got in the car on the Sunday. 
Uh, they dressed up the garage. His father was there, his, you know, Norbert dancing around on the back of a flatbed truck. The whole thing was becoming surreal. It was just getting, it was becoming everything that Sebastian hasn't really wanted over the last few years, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, but yeah, it was fitting. Um, what I also found quite interesting was the reaction of the other drivers. I mean, when did Fernando Alonso become such a big Sebastian Vettel fan? That's what I want to know. Who would have thought that after all the comments he'd said over the years, uh, you know, Adrian Newey won four championships and then uh, these four championships will be worth nothing when we see Sebastian in a bad car and all these comments, admittedly from about 10 years ago, he's the last person diving into the cockpit before Seb leaves the line. I mean, I thought that whole thing was just uh, quite surreal, the reaction of others. Um, it was interesting to see the outpouring of love from all the other teams from journalists who can be quite you know barbed in that in that way if that's the word um he he just sort of seemed to transcend everything and and as scott says he has been doing that over the last couple of years but um yeah, if he does a Felipe Massa and comes back in about a week's time, we're all going to be pretty pissed off, won't we? I mean, you can't you can't come back <laughs> after a, a departure like that. Yeah, Massa got the emotional farewell and he did come back and had to have another one. But this was at a whole uh, other level. And it was interesting, the respect you mentioned of the other drivers. I think Fernando Alonso almost didn't want to attack him during the race, although that might have been because he was quite keen on Aston Martin getting another place in the Constructors' Championship. But also, Scott, I think you spoke to Mike Crack after the race, didn't you? And despite all that distraction and all this stuff that was going on, it was still Vettel really putting in the hard yards over that weekend. Yeah, there were there were two things really about... Sebastian's final weekend that I I was particularly pleased to see. What what one was generally how he handled that emotion. Uh, I know that Aston Martin were very impressed by it and actually didn't think he would handle it as well as he did. And that's not to speak ill of Sebastian. It's just a reflection of just how amped up that weekend was. It, as as Lee pointed out, just from the from the first from the first day of activities in Abu Dhabi and even a little bit before that in Brazil there was a very much an air of we know that we're coming to the end here so everyone's sort of talking about it and lots going on the the drivers dinner the GPDA dinner for example which was set up initially explicitly for Sebastian's farewell to 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 honor him you know to command that much respect and affection uh speaks volumes for the quality of Sebastian as an individual as well as obviously what people think of him as a driver so first of all there was that general way he handled all of that and channeled that into just focusing on the job basically but then the second part was just the quality of the job he did and how professional he was about it I mean it was as good as we've seen him in qualifying this season he then drove a really good race but the strategy was against him and then I think I might have mentioned this on our post-race podcast afterwards once he'd finally cleared all of those uh, pesky media duties and everything after the race he still managed to find his way back to the back to the um the team he joined a little bit late but still fully engaged in the debrief um, because it's Sebastian Vettel, so of course, why would you not do a full and frank debrief after your final Grand Prix when you never have to drive that car again? Um, and then toasted the team with a little bit of what I think was Jägermeister as well. So yeah, just the quintessential Sebastian Vettel experience, I think, for Aston Martin on his final weekend. He's certainly always been famous for the length and detail of his technical feedback. It's never been short debriefs. Lance Stroll did joke that he he wouldn't be missing those, given how much, uh, much detail Vettel uh, goes into. But you have to say, Lee, talked about many of these these great drivers in your book but 
Vettel is one of the few, I think, who gets to have almost the perfect farewell. He has had this half-season farewell tour. It's been quite low-key up to Abu Dhabi. Then he has the final race. He's gone out on his own terms. It's so rare to have that, isn't it, to to get their departure right. And I think probably Vettel has timed it to perfection, hasn't he? He's had these couple of years just enjoying himself, turning in some good performances, and just he just seems completely at ease with what he's achieved and what he's going to do in the future. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, there were, uh, you know, big performances before Abu Dhabi. If you look at um, Austin, you know, he put in, you know, he was really feisty on track. He was driving, I think, maybe with a bit more of a freedom um, because it's very easy when you've made that announcement uh, in Hungary to then go, wow, this is my last Belgian Grand Prix. This is my last Monza. This is my last. And and then on it goes and you can get caught up in that. Um, But I think... He seems very much at ease. There was a couple of moments where I thought, oh, is he? You know, when he started saying, well, maybe I could come back to do one race next year or maybe, you know, maybe I will drive in another series. And that does sort of like that, that played on my mind a little bit because I wasn't sure if he was just saying these things to almost take the pressure off him. So this isn't my last big moment in a car, Um, even though unless it comes back to Formula One, it is, because no other series is going to uh, live up to that same expectation with him. Um, but yeah, I wondered at some points if he was just trying to take the pressure off him by almost convincing himself that, yeah, I could come back. Um, but for me, it's very much done. Um, what he's achieved, the way his entire career has played out, particularly over the last couple of years, um, it is the right time. It absolutely is the right time because there were times at Ferrari when I was standing alongside David Coulthard and Mark Webber, you know, and and they were almost trying to come up with excuses as to how he was driving at Ferrari and the mistakes. And and that's not nice. So for him to go out competitively and on his own merit, I think is hugely important. I think there was also an element of um, not not just going out on his own terms, but I'm really pleased that he went out with this extra sort of two-year sort of almost addendum to his career after the Ferrari one so that we did see that other side of him come through. There was a point, I think it's uh, I think it's quite an early point in the chapter on Seb in your, in your book, Lee, but you sort of draw on something which I remember discussing with a couple of people in the paddock in Abu Dhabi, that there's this almost um, Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing with sort of su- successful Seb versus the real Seb and sort of the the version of Vettel that people either interpreted, especially at the height of his Red Bull success, but whether that was perception, whether that was a bit of how he did kind of carry himself at times in that four-year run, that definitely put a few people off him. And I think I think masked what actually the person was beneath that. And, and I can say that from the perspective of someone who was very much watching F1 from the outside at the time. And I always kind of thought like... I. I quite like this guy. I don't really get why everyone seems to hate him, but I can understand that the finger is really, <laughs> really annoying every time you see that. And then when I came into F1, I saw a bit of a side of him where I was like, he's quite guarded. He's always a little bit wary of being caught out. Doesn't always know why you're asking the question that you're asking, even if there's absolutely no agenda attached to the question that, that you're talking about. Um, but that faded once he sort of was out of Ferrari that there was such a big shift from in from my perspective how he handled himself the, what he talked about how he just sort of engaged with things and while it was absolutely brilliant that we did see him bow out 
still being successful, still performing at a high level, it almost felt to me like that last year or two didn't quite matter that much because Seb had stopped winning, he'd stopped dominating and he basically stopped pissing people off because he was so successful. And everyone just seemed to enjoy who Sebastian is because he's Sebastian Vettel. And I feel like it would have been a very, very different kind of farewell if we hadn't had the last year or two of Sebastian that we did. Yeah, that's why I was so keen on him going to Aston Martin. I remember when it was clear he was out of Ferrari, I really liked the idea. And I think it's worked really well, even though the results on track haven't been great for the team. It's almost exercised that difficult time with with Ferrari. But I think that point about Sebastian Vettel communicating himself better to the fans, not necessarily just through what he's doing, but through his situation, has played a big part. Because I always found during that period when he's dominating with Red Bull, the public perception and the real person was so dramatically different going back 10 12 years did you find that Lee that obviously particularly British media he was sometimes he was almost public enemy number one wasn't he for yeah. the, the relationship with Weber etc and I always thought that reflected a driver who generally didn't exist certainly not a character that really existed and also what was odd about that time is a lot of people were you're, you're sort of essentially hating on a kid you know this is a this is someone who is so young you know didn't ever get in a cart so he could be interviewed by people like us, just was following his dream, happened to be pretty good at it. And then everyone seemed to be absolutely outraged. I do wonder if there's something in that sort of protected, seemingly protected Red Bull driver sort of thing. As soon as, you know, Helmut Marko puts his arm around a driver, the world goes berserk. They're like, okay, public enemy number one, we'll support the other side of the garage. And I still think there's a bit of a hangover with that as well now. Um, I also think that Mark, uh, and I, I've said this to Mark's face, you know, obviously he's now my colleague, but a good friend, managed things very well. You know, Mark is the best out there of that sort of little passive aggressive humor and all the rest of it and just needles pretty well. And he knew what he was doing. Actually, Seb handled that really well. He kind of can just, uh, in a bit of the way that Max can do, just filtered out, took in what he needed to, blocked out what he didn't need to. Um but yeah, it's uh, it, the Ferrari time was a strange time. And again, we saw that with Fernando. You know, Seb isn't the first driver to turn up at Maranello as a you know multiple world champion and leave empty handed. And the pressure I think that that brings on someone and almost the disappointment, understanding that you can't make this work, that must be huge. Um, so I think Aston Martin is almost a, a bit of relief without being disrespectful to that team. He also loved the team because it was a team of racers, as as we all know. You know, the, the DNA, everything that they've gone through, they just love motor racing. And that suits Seb because he just loves motor racing. And certainly that Ferrari period did seem to amplify the, the negatives of Vettel, shall we say, the mistakes that happen. He's always had a mistake in him, but the frequency of mistakes did get, particularly towards the end, just too high for a driver of his calibre. And there were times when his self-control perhaps wasn't always at its most powerful. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But before we get on to that, Scott, we should probably talk about the contribution he's made to Aston Martin. We've talked about how important the years were for him, but he has actually offered quite a lot to a team at an important time, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. Um, It's... I've been trying to think, actually, I knew we were going to get onto this in this podcast. I was trying to work out in my head how to say it without sounding massively disrespectful to Seb. Because um, I don't want it to sound like I was saying he was being a seat warmer for, for Fernando. Um, but I think without Sebastian, I don't think that team's capable of or has any chance of handling Alonso next year. I think you need a, a driver to come in who is 
gonna up your game in in a lot of areas because Sebastian is uh, Sebastian's got very high standards. He's got a certain way of working. He's relentless in certain areas that we talked a little bit before about the the engineering debriefs being an example of that. He's not the kind of person that accepts just turning up, phoning it in, and then leaving it at the end of the weekend. So it's not that. You know, Fernando wants it more than him or is more motivated than him. But I think if, if you've got two types of people to work with behind the scenes, I can totally imagine Sebastian being a much more collaborative partner in addressing your weaknesses in the interim. Whereas if Fernando goes in there and things just aren't good enough, I can see sparks straight away. I just can see that. So I think I think Sebastian was absolutely the type of um, champion, racer and person to have in that organisation as part of this really ambitious and aggressive plan to be a world championship challenging team within a few years. Um, So yeah, I'm sure that they won't miss the length of some of the debriefs, but the way that Sebastian um, is able to analyse certain things, what he focuses on, where he tried to point the team, not just in terms of car development direction, but, you know, bringing all together things that he knew from what worked well and didn't work well at Red Bull and Ferrari at the factory, how they actually manage things trackside. Communication between drivers and engineers is something that is chronically underrated from outside of of Formula One, like people that do just watch it and and they don't hear people talk about these kind of things. Sebastian's worked with some of the absolute best in the business, so that will be um, raising Aston Martin's game behind the scenes. So I... I think that Aston Martin would have got an awful lot out of him. And let's also not forget that without Sebastian, they also wouldn't have had the results that they've had in the last couple of years um, without him. They they haven't been as grand as, as was hoped, especially after becoming a race-winning team as Racing Point in 2020. But pretty much all of the peaks over the last two seasons have been Seb, not Lance. And I think Sebastian has sort of dragged that car at times to places it shouldn't have been. And this year... The surge that they had in the second half of the season in the championship, which turned them from the ninth best team in Formula One to the seventh and almost the sixth, and probably gained them about $25 million in prize money. That's mostly down to Seb. So on track and off track, I, I think he is, I, I suspect they paid him quite a lot, but I would imagine he's been worth worth the money. <laughs> He also always said that he wants to be an F1 to win, not for just being there. But I did get the impression, Lee, that he actually quite enjoyed that that kind of midfield battle at Aston Martin. Okay, he probably didn't want to be doing that for years, but that environment did seem to suit him. And I think he probably took quite a bit of satisfaction from that in perhaps the way a driver can do if they've already got four world championships and, and 53 wins. They can afford to be a little bit more relaxed about such a situation. Yeah, because he'd never been in that situation before. I mean, you could say actually, but we're going right back. We're going to say Toro Rosso. And then when you win a race at um, at Toro Rosso, it's a bonus, isn't it? So uh, that you can't do that when you're fighting for championships at Red Bull. You certainly can't do that at Ferrari, even though if the you know the car underneath you might only be good for that. Uh, but this was the first time that he could get in a car and anything you know above tenth, ninth was kind of a bonus. Um, so it let him, you know, be himself, but it let him enjoy being around with team and help a team. And let's not forget, he's sort of learned a lot of what he knew from Michael 
who loved to try and help a team and galvanize a team and get a team around him. And I think the biggest difference between Seb and Fernando next year is Fernando says he likes all this kind of stuff, but he's, his fuse is a lot <laughs> shorter. We've seen that before when he went back to McLaren, it was all, oh, great. Everyone's fantastic. You know, fast forward a few races and he's shouting about GP2 engines and things like that. So I think Fernando has all the good intentions, but but maybe has less patience to be able to make that try and work. Yeah, and I think Fernando probably isn't at ease with what he's achieved in Formula One for all exactly. his success. <laughs> and he won't say it, but I think he knows that there could have been a lot more wins and a lot more championships in him. But actually mentioning someone like Schumacher, it feels a little bit like that Michael Schumacher stint at Mercedes when he helped uh, further the team. So he wasn't there for kind of the glory days with it, but he played a part with that experience. David Coulthard, I guess, in the early days at Red Bull is another one who springs to mind. So I'm sure down the line, we'll hear people at Aston Martin saying, actually, Seb played an important part in where we have got to now, assuming they get to where they expect to. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Now, Lee, let's talk a little bit about probably the more challenging part of Sebastian Vettel, particularly for someone like yourself interviewing him straight after races. In the chapter on Vettel in your book, you tackle some of the less positive aspects of his career, multi-21, the swearing at Charlie Whiting over the radio, the 2016 Mexican Grand Prix, hitting Lewis Hamilton under the safety car at Baku. There were times when the on-track Vettel was unrecognisable compared to the one off the track. Well, what I thought was so sort of strange about it, I, I don't even know if I can articulate what the word is I'm trying to get to, because because he never came across as that person, when he did, it just seemed a bit perplexing. It's like there was a sort of a volatility that was there that didn't always take that much to get to. Um, I suppose the first time might have been way back, Turkey, Mark Webber, not necessarily the crash on track, but the sort of like the the head, you know, twirling his finger at the side of his head crazy. But then he always handled things well in interviews. He always maintained himself very well in interviews. Um, like he would just almost take time to think. I do remember um, when he came into the pen in Azerbaijan after, um, as he said, Lewis brake checked him and then he went into the side of Lewis. And Lewis was incandescent, but actually handled himself so well that day. Whereas Seb walked towards me and gave a little kind of, you know, the face that a kid would do when they maybe know they've done something wrong. Like, uh, he did that. And I thought, oh, no. And he couldn't square it off. So he just completely ignored the question. And I asked the question maybe like six, seven times. And I hate when people do that. Um, it's uncomfortable and it's pointless. And I then have become that person. But you had to address that situation with him. You know, he did that as a as a four-time world champion, he was going mad on his team radio, particularly the Charlie one, which I know uh, he instantly went up to Charlie and I know, you know, they were great friends. They, you know, that was the, the odd thing about it. He and Charlie were such good friends. But there were these moments where um, it just really threw you. And maybe we shouldn't be surprised because you don't become a four-time world champion or a world champion without a real toughness. Maybe he just hit it better than others. Um, but when it did manifest itself, 
it it just it kind of like it didn't it wasn't just by 10%, it was by 110%. It was almost like just a complete loss of control, wasn't it? I, I think that Baku thing and his refusal to address it just almost reflected the fact he couldn't almost couldn't reconcile himself with it. Yeah. Because obviously in the cold light of day, he couldn't justify it. And I think sometimes it, he forgot that we would see it or we would hear it. You know, and then it was like when you asked a question about it, it was like, well, what are you asking me about this? You know, why would you ask uh, this question? I'm like, well, because, you know, millions of people have just seen this situation develop. We kind of have to address it. But yeah, uh, that was one part that I just always thought just was a bit of a disconnect. There was always a sense of, and I don't mean this necessarily in a negative way, but there's a, I've always felt there's a really strong sense of righteousness around Sebastian. He's got a really, really strong idea of what's right and wrong. And obviously we're seeing that manifest itself in an almost universally positive way now with when he has looked beyond F1 and at wider issues. But these moments that are these sort of almost case studies of him losing control on track almost seem to me like it's where that, sense of his sense of right and wrong meets that kind of emotionally charged red mist moment behind the visor and when those two things combined it ignites because he in those moments 100% believes he is in the right and so the Baku thing he's 100% convinced Lewis has brake tested him thinks that he has just been wronged in the worst possible way so anything he does after that what's the problem because he he's I don't know whether he thinks it's evening the scoreboard or, or whatever it is, but in all of those examples, it, it's not—it's not like there's there's not an absence of a trigger. There's something there that makes him think someone has done something against me here. The one example that did, didn't get mentioned but always stands out to me is the, the the Canada incident when he got the penalty and changed the position boards after those. I like I know it's a lot more. It's a lot more minor, I suppose, than some of these other examples. But that was, for me, was a great example of just that, that he just can't help himself, that little bit of emotion and petulance that just comes through because he hasn't got his way. And it's because he thinks he's been totally wronged. And there's almost, when you look at it like that, there's almost kind of like nothing wrong with the way he's reacted if that is how he feels, it's just, it's not the most mature way of handling things. And you're right, it's a bit at odds with the person that you see a lot of the time where there's a lot of rationalisation. And in these moments, you're just like, what's happened there? You've just completely lost control. I think as well, because it was almost a career in reverse. If he had been doing these things as a young driver, you would kind of have worked out what you were dealing with. But because he was you know, getting however many pole positions, winning races, just like owning four seasons in a row, essentially, you kind of thought you knew what you were dealing with. And then everything changed in 2014. And then we had to start again and go, right, okay, who is Sebastian Vettel? And I think maybe that's part of it as well. And the whole Ferrari experience clearly wasn't what he hoped it would have been. He went there expecting to win more world championships he was kind of following in the footsteps of Michael Schumacher his great mentor that was almost his destiny to go to Ferrari and although he won races he was a team leader there for many years it just never quite worked and even before he went there there were changes in management so that whole period you can understand why those circumstances perhaps brought out the worst in him I don't really hold with those who think it was all Ferrari's fault and Vettel played no part in it because I think there were times where he let himself down in amongst a lot of very, very good performances as well. But almost that's the worst environment for him. I wonder whether 
given he's a driver who's quite an emotional character, isn't he? And that, that I guess, is at the root of that loss of control. Had he gone to a less charged team, a less emotionally charged team than Ferrari, do you think perhaps he could have had more success elsewhere? I mean, obviously, if he was in a Mercedes in that period, there would have been a lot more wins and surely championships. Yeah, I think it was either, uh, I think it was Eddie Jordan or or actually maybe Mark Webber that said if Ferrari were based in the UK, things would be so much better. Of course, it took about 25 seconds for Ferrari PR to come storming into the midst of our programme saying you cannot say things like that. But that's the draw of Ferrari. And I think actually that's maybe what Charles experiencing a little bit at the moment as well. Um, you know, this is a team which prides itself on passion. And that is fantastic and, you know, a great place to be and celebrate and things when whenever things going right. But when things aren't going right, sometimes you just need that um, coolness um, that that Mercedes have. And, you know, we, we sort of like going, you know, there'll be once maybe a year or something or a couple of times a year where people that are outraged because Mercedes made a strategic error. <laughs> And, you know, that is probably the biggest compliment that you can pay pay to them because they don't make errors like that. And it would be interesting to see see Seb at another team like a Mercedes, but alongside a Lewis, would that have worked out? I don't think so. I think everyone was, you know, every race fan would love to see them in the same cars battling out. But these things rarely work out like that. You know, there will always be a number one or a driver who is in control, who sort of grinds the other one down to submission, whether they like it or not. And I think that, you know, Mercedes is very much Lewis's team, even with the the results that we've had this year for George, who's done an exceptional job. Seb's always struck me as someone for whom the culture of the team around him is absolutely key to how he performs. And I think every driver is, is affected by that to a greater or lesser extent. But if you look at what he had at Red Bull where he was obviously center of attention arms around the shoulders you know you're the guy don't worry like you've got this and at Ferrari Ed mentioned that there were already management changes quite early on there ultimately the people that brought him into Ferrari weren't either weren't there when he arrived or weren't there very long and then the people that then took charge they that he they and Seb had a very different way about how you go about things. You know, Seb very heart on his sleeve, speak honestly, speak openly. It's not about blame, but it's about responsibility. And I don't think Ferrari accepted that for a very very long time. And I think there was even a point where uh, Vettel and Arriva Bene clashed to such a degree that Arriva Bene came out and said, "You need to focus on the driving, not trying to run the team." And it's like, well, this is never going to work, is it? Whereas. The Mercedes example is a really good one because you will not hear the word culture used in Formula One in a more common context than around Mercedes in the last few years and the the way that they try to work without blame, without fear, anything like that. And I wonder if, just going back to Aston Martin and that organisation, that team of racers that we talked about a little bit earlier on just gelled perfectly with the way Sebastian wants to go about things because there are no politics there, or there shouldn't be. Um, maybe there are a few more politics now than there were a few years ago. Um, but it is much. there's a lot less nonsense around that organisation, whereas Ferrari, for example, there is just a circus attached to it at all times. There's a lot of infighting. There's a, you know, the knives are out in, in Maranello every 6, 12, 18 months during that period. And I just can't see how that can bring the best out of Sebastian Vettel. If you see what came before and what came after it, that that to me is just a sort of fundamental incompatibility. 
or any driver, you could say. And sorry, uh, just on that, Ed, just what Scott was saying, you know, Seb's a, a, someone who likes an arm around him and a team around him. He had that at Red Bull and he chose to leave it. You know, he was beaten in one season by Daniel Ricciardo. But before that, he had owned everything and he still chose to leave. So also, never mind just leaving for another team. Had he stayed, you just wonder what might have been. Yeah, it's a reminder that you've got to make the right decisions and time your moves correctly. That's something that Lewis Hamilton's career... Back to Fernando. Well, yeah, Lewis Hamilton <laughs> exemplifies at one end, Fernando Alonso at the other end. Exactly. Of the, yeah, you've literally just picked the polar opposites there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's just the way, the way things tend to work out in Formula One. But the one thing that was clear at Red Bull and at Aston Martin in particular, he is generally beloved by the teams he's in. The people who work with him really like working with him because he is just a... He's just fundamentally a hardworking, honest, decent kind of guy. And they know that when you put him in the car, by and large, he's going to produce something okay. He didn't produce it with as much regularity over the second half of his career. But still, even with Aston Martin, there were some great moments. I know Tom McCulloch, their performance director, was talking the other day about Monaco last year, which was the first weekend when they saw the kind of magic battle. And they thought, oh, yeah, this this is this is a guy we can really get behind. So although that was still there at Ferrari, it was complicated wasn't it I guess anyone can be stretched by those sort of circumstances and the the kind of cracks open and and your weaknesses get get magnified as well well Scott let's talk a little bit about Vettel's future he's been quite elusive on the topic generally he says he's got lots of ideas and isn't committed to something clearly activism related to the climate emergency is going to be part of that that's become quite a, a big thing for him over the past couple of years and that reflects very positively on him doesn't it it does. I do wonder if that kind of that difficulty in reconciling his increasing personal views and interest in that area with what he has done as a profession for his entire life. Obviously, we know that that did play a part in the decision to retire, but I also wonder if it's feeding into him trying to work out what he does next because I can imagine it being quite difficult for him to get on board with mentally even if, even when it was the thing he was paid to do and, and it was his job. But I I can only imagine it's even harder for him to be like, can I, do I really want to do this as my hobby? Do I want to do it for fun? Like going around driving cars, you know, belching out, you know, consuming fossil fuels and bel- belching out carbon and all of this into the atmosphere. Do I want to do that for fun? I don't feel like that really goes with what he's passionate passionate about and what he's tried to educate himself and others about so I, I wonder if he needs to try and work out what if there is anything out there that that does blend those two things I'm not saying we're going to see him turn up in ETCR or one of those electric racing series in the next couple of years although it would be quite would be quite fun to see I can't see him turning up in extreme or anything like that either um but we know that obviously he's got his interest in, he's got his collection, doesn't he, of, um, sort of historic F1 cars and he's worked really hard to find some carbon neutral fuels or better fuels to, to, to use for those. I can absolutely see him playing around with those as much as he can in a way that sort of leaves him content. And we know that I certainly for 2023, but who knows, maybe beyond that, he will be at the Race of Champions as well because he loves that event. And this ties in a little bit with that... Um, that love of motorsport in general and and history. And this is more about sort of like the modern version of that history. He loves surrounding himself with people that he respects and people that he's seen achieve things in other disciplines. So I I can absolutely see events like that becoming sort of the mainstay of Seb's 
post F1 racing future. I would be very, very surprised if we see him back uh, in in F1 in anything more than sort of fleeting visits here and there. Sad, sadly for us all here, I don't think we'll see him cropping up as a pundit from uh, from time to time. That would be it would be quite interesting to see. But yeah, he's been a bit vague with it. I think it's probably because he just hasn't given much thought to it and genuinely doesn't know what he wants to do. But it'll be cool to see him turn turn up from time to time, even if it's just guest outings in things or just fun demonstrations. I actually think the point you make about what he's done in his life being a, a Formula One driver and how that interacts with uh, the campaign he's doing is, is quite a positive because he's not afraid to admit there's a certain hypocrisy. But that's the case for everyone. Find someone who's not making a greater or lesser negative impact and you know it, it's, a, it's a minor miracle. I mean, even people who work very, very hard and almost build their lives around minimising the impact can only do it to a certain level. So maybe that's a positive. But you have interviewed him about this kind of thing in the past as well. So what do you see his role is longer term? And can you see a kind of Sebastian Vettel that's defined by something else other than being a Formula One driver or, as he is now, an ex-Formula One driver? I asked him, I was trying to think when this was, it was maybe about six years ago, um, cause I, some, you know, I will sometimes see Seb, uh, away from racetracks and things. We have the same friends, you know, we, we catch up and I asked him something and he said, you will never believe what I'm going to do when I retire. <laughs> I said to him a few like weeks ago, I was like, okay, you said this to me eight years ago. Did you have an idea? What is your idea? And I think his idea has changed an awful lot since he's had the kids. So he is, um, very hands-on in their education with the girls. Um, you know, he Scott's absolutely right. He loves his historic cars. Uh, we know that he's got cars and he's been changing it, changing the fuels and things like that. Um, but that is a hobby at this stage. You can't, you know, you can't sort of like put Goodwood Revival and a couple of other things in your diary and call that a job. You know, it's not the thing. But I, I, I'm interested in to see if he can go into it in the business sense. I mean, Nico Rosberg runs Green Tech Festivals, and I've done a couple of events with him. Um, and he's interested in buying up sustainable businesses and helping them grow. I don't know if that's what Sebastian really wants to do. Um, and I think it's also worth saying that you know we. Um, sort of sit here and discuss this. And he hasn't just been paying uh, lip service to things. You know, he used to travel around in a, a private plane and then he worked out that that is not good. And he has been driving himself around Europe for the last few years, um, which you could argue against that as well, but you can argue against anything in the world. Um, but he really has been changing things in his own home as well. Uh, it changes the water system in his own home. So it's recycling water and different things as well. So he is living this. He's actually said to me before that sometimes Hannah, his wife is like, what is this now? And it's, he's changing things in his home to try and be more sustainable and, and more um, just much more aware and live by the values that he really believes in. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's not going to be chaining himself to the top of the Dartford Bridge. But if he can actually just, you know, sort of implement this and then find a business way, because he's an intelligent guy. He's not wanting to sit at home. He already has a couple of little businesses on the side that he's had for, for quite a while. Um and yeah, I, I, it's a it's a sketchy answer, but he's going to do something business wise. You don't suddenly stop wanting to make money. You want to keep making money, but put it to a good use. There's something that Lee said there that I just want to pick up on, which is about um, the way 
that Sebastian sort of lives by what he's taught, talked about, especially the last couple of years. And in um, Austria, uh, he had on the Thursday, I think it was the first Thursday at which the teams put on sort of driver media sessions again um, after a bit of a weird schedule for, for 2022. And Seb's one, there were very, very few of us there. I think only five or six turned up. Um, and it was basically 20 minutes of, of barely less than 5% modern F1 talk. And a lot of it was about, um, you know, behavioural changes, the push for sustainability and stuff like this. And the, my big takeaway from it was something that he said, which is, and I, I truly believe he was being sincere when he said this, is that he doesn't say anything with the intention of telling people this is what you should be doing. He is so, so aware of the privilege that he has as someone who has earned as much money that he has in his career and has the opportunity to make the sort of changes that that Lee was talking about. So when he's talking about that, he's and um, I'll paraphrase him because I can't remember exactly what he said verbatim, but he said, yeah, I know that when I talk about having solar panels on my roof, then someone listening to that, they might they might be renting an apartment. They might have a landlord that that won't do stuff like that or they won't even change the way that they heat the flat or, or that kind of thing. And he mentioned driving to races in Europe and said I know that that is not an option for people and this is something that I've probably mentioned a couple of times this year now but I feel it's really important to stress with Seb because a lot of people roll their eyes and say oh yeah but he's got a load of money and he's a massive hypocrite so why should we listen to him but he's not saying you should be exactly like me he's just saying this is what I think this is what I've tried to do about it and I just think it would be a really good idea if people just sort of read into this and did things that they could um, around this which I just think is a pretty good motto to live by in general but it's I've, we've said because there is just this perception I think it's the same with Lewis whenever he talks about issues like this there is this perception of this isn't sincere what are they talking about they don't speak for me they're not really trying to and with Seb there is definitely an earnestness and sincerity there people should take seriously but just not take it the wrong way because I think he does mean what he's talking about and I think he's quite important in that regard because the tone he's taking is about finding ways to change to kind of keep doing the things that you want to do rather than the more negative message. I mean, yeah, there will be some things that have to stop, but I think it's a much more constructive message than just being aggressively anti-everything, if you see what I mean, because people tend to not respond to that. So I can see Vettel having a good place where he can fit in constructively in this exactly where that is. Uh, I don't know, but I think he's, he's an interesting counterpoint, isn't he, Lee, to Lewis Hamilton, because they're both campaigning, but they both have quite different sort of tones and approaches, don't they, in the way they do it. Both good, but quite complementary in the way they communicate. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because um, Lewis's uh, campaigns, you know, he's talked about racism in the past that he was subjected to and bullying that he was subjected to. Sebastian's um, is almost self-taught because his is environmental. And the other issues that he has tried to take on, he has gone and learned about them, which is actually what he's asking us to do. So we don't have to come from uh, a, a position where it's actually affected us since we were children or whatever, um, because we're all going through climate change and all this kind of stuff for the first time. So in many ways, it's easier, I think, for us. And I do sit here appreciating that we are, you know, 
three white people having a conversation about this, but, you know, we don't know what Lewis has gone through. We can't put ourselves in that situation. And I can understand why he is completely impassioned about this because it affected the start of his life and it affects his life to this day. Um, So I think actually what Lewis and Sebastian have done together is really important. And actually at the end of Abu Dhabi last week, I thought Seb was really good. He was uh, on a, a stage with Lando and he was saying, you know, I want these guys to, to take this on. You know, Lando has spoken openly about mental health, which is why in um, Azerbaijan earlier on this year, I thought that the comments from Mohammed Bilsoyan were, were just completely unnecessary saying that, you know, Seb rides a rainbow bicycle and all that sort of thing, you know, to even put them out to then have to apologize for them was completely tone deaf um, because it wasn't just having a go. You're basically having a go at all your drivers and telling them to stop doing what the rest of the world is doing. And I've never stood by this, um, you know, politics and sport don't go hand in hand. They've been going hand in hand for a hundred years. That's just a a sort of a lazy argument. You don't want it to overshadow the sport, but that is the biggest platform that people have in this day and age. You know, sport is more uniting than religion for a lot of people now. So I think that that will always be, um, be the case now. It's just how they go hand in hand, because really the sport should always be what we're there for. I 100% agree. It'd be a lot easier for us all if uh, sports and politics really didn't mix, but we can't <laughs> pretend that it doesn't happen. That's just that's just the reality of the uh, of the world. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream Direct TV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on Direct TV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on Direct TV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. Direct TV has the most MLB games. Visit directtv.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, let's move on to the big question now with Sebastian Vettel. Uh, Lee, in your book, you refer to him as a nerd and a stato, albeit you do caveat it that it's his own admission. That So he, perhaps more than any other driver, should have a feel for his place in F1 history. Have you ever managed to get a decent answer out of him about where he feels he stands? He just doesn't go near it. It's, it's, uh, I have tried. I've tried in various interviews 
um, over the years, interviews after where he's been winning, when he's been, you know, not winning and latterly. And he always says it's not for him to judge. And, um, you know, I wonder if he had been battling for those championships in a slightly different way. I mean, two of them. Absolutely. He he did fight until the end. And, you know, you think of that last race in Brazil and the carnage and coming back. It was like Mario Kart. It was absolute madness. But um, there was just this idea around him that he started from the front and he led and crossed the checkered flag. And that was a race over. And I think that was a little bit um, unfair uh, because Red Bull were just, you know, dominating everything at that time. Which is why I also think it's quite odd that they hadn't had a one-two in the championship when you think of those years from sort of 2010, 11, 12, 13 particularly. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I think actually Sebastian's four titles to many people don't carry the same weight as other championships. And I, I think that's wrong. I think, um, you know, what he did, particularly two of the two of the years uh, was pretty impressive. So um, maybe he has that in the back of his mind or maybe he just doesn't care that much. Um, you know, he can go through that chart, which I love watching. That's why the nerd and stato bit. When he was asked to go through his um, Formula One world champions, it's one of the greatest videos you will see. He just rolls through it. I like it when he goes, me, 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 me. And then he gets back into it. Um, it's just, it's great. But does it matter to him if, we, if he's, uh, I don't know, before Prost, beyond Prost? I, I don't know if it really does. I think one of the things that, I like about Vettel is he does it's less about he says oh I belong among these people and more the fact that he it continues to be kind of privileged to be considered among them more than anything I remember when he used to come to the Autosport Awards one of the reasons why was because that would be the time he'd he'd come down the stairs for his walk on and there'd be Sterling Moss there and Jackie Stewart and all these greats applauding him and that really meant something to him that was why he wanted to do it I remember standing with him at the top of the stairs waiting for him to, to do his his walk on and I suppose the word humbled's always used but he, he was genuinely humbled by it and there's a reference in your book to when he wins his second title I think and he's shown a video of the double champions yeah. which really clearly got to him which I just really like because I, I don't think F1 drivers have to know what's come before they don't have to be interested in the history but it's nice when they are some could tell you nothing but the fact Vettel can reel off all the champions obviously he got it from his his dad Norbert in terms of uh, uh, that appreciation but I, I, I really enjoy seeing that from Vettel and I think Scott fans probably like that as well particularly those who do have a real feel for the history of the sport that respect for it the same he has got the respect that fans have for that history yeah, he understands the magnitude of his achievements, which I think is is not always the case, not just in F1, but I think in any wider sport, even you know, if it's a footballer that breaks a goal-scoring record and this kind of thing, like like if they know what they're chasing and who has done this before, then it does mean a lot more to them and then by extension it means a lot more to the person watching. It's funny that you brought up the the reference in the book to the um to that uh seeing the the the, the reel of the two, the double world champions because that was something that stood out to me as well and I made a note of it because I knew we'd get onto this and it is that it's that fact that he doesn't care about where he sits in the you know what his place is among the greats but he I think it's absolutely right he's just delighted to be in the conversation that that kind of and he doesn't want to have that conversation he doesn't care if we have that conversation around him but just to, I think to hear his name 
amongst those people is is something quite special to him. Um, exactly, sort of where you put him kind of depends on what you um, how you measure a driver, really, doesn't it? Do you prioritise their peak over their longevity? Um, it's an absolute fool's errand, and I'm not going to let Ed trick me into trying to place uh, Sev on, on this podcast. There was a point. There is something that I wanted to actually say from uh it's a quote that actually does appear in in the book i think it's from uh i think it's from 2010 is i think it's the thursday in japan and he's just talking about his season it's not a broader thing but he says uh in terms of speed and performance um i think we can be very happy uh and proud um in terms of results they didn't always meet our expectations it's been pretty much up and down which that was very much about his 2010 season, but I thought when I read it, I was like, that's just Seb's, Seb's entire career, isn't it? <laughs> like the peaks are absolutely phenomenal. The the lows are pretty low. It's very up and down. Some things weren't quite as good as you expected to be, but overall, you've just got to be pretty impressed and, uh, having watched it. And if you're him, you've got to be pretty damn proud of yourself for having lived it. Yeah, he absolutely loves... Um... You know, it's just a point that what Ed said there. I remember my father was in, um, well, I was a journalist and was in Formula One for years. And dad went round Abu Dhabi and said to a few of the drivers, you know, I'm I'm going to retire. And, you know, he'd spent a lot of time with Lewis and everyone Lewis was like, all right, off you go kind of thing. And Seb was like, oh, can I just have a word with you? I, I understood because he always used to call him Father Mackenzie from um, the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby. So that instantly, you know, annoys my dad as a Fleet Street hack that, you know, all of a sudden he's just known as a comedy line in the song. And he was like, I am, uh, Lee tells me you were at Senna's funeral. Did you have time to, to chat about that? And my dad was like, uh, Okay, and it was just a re- and, and Seb, you know, was like, oh well, you know, I would it'd be really nice to talk. And my dad was like, is this like a trick or someone's going to like come out and chuck water or something on me? Um, and but Seb was just interested. He's just absolutely, you know, loves all this stuff. Jackie Stewart tells stories as well about Seb just grilling him. You know, Bernie, who he was close to and played backgammon with and all the rest of it exactly the same he would use these people like sponges to try and imagine what it was like to be you know uh Jackie Stewart Francois Sever all these guys at Jochen Mass or whoever through the ages of Formula One he wanted to just take every moment he could with anyone who had been there in that given moment to learn from and I absolutely love that yeah and he's had the chance to live it and be that that driver he's a very interesting driver actually when you do talk about the place he sits among the greats because it is kind of the task of people like us and many other people not exclusively as much as i'd like that to be the case um to almost rule on this and he's a driver who's phenomenally successful and i've i've had complaints from uh from readers and listeners in the past for saying this but i i basically see it as a, there's a kind of group of the absolute legendary superstar drivers who really raised the bar there's only about nine or ten of them you're kind of going through Fangio Moss Clark Stewart through to Senna Prost Schumacher Hamilton and to me that does sit just below those but that's purely because of that slight inconsistency in his career his peak was absolutely incredible and like you were saying earlier Lee I think people underestimate just how brilliant he was in that Red Bull era particularly in terms of adapting himself to those exhaust blown cars this counterintuitive driving style and someone like Mark Webber struggled to do that in the same way and Mark Webber was a very very good driver but Vettel could do that and it's strange really that he was brilliantly adaptable there 
but at the same time he was less adaptable to other things so I think it was because that was a type of car that he could drive it in a way that gave him what he wanted that that sharp turn in the right level of rear rotation and stability to to really work and other times things didn't go so well for him but again we talk about him as a Ferrari failure but he's still their third most successful driver in terms of wins so He's had an absolutely incredible career and he's right up there, not just through sheer weight of statistics, but through how good he was. But he's just not quite in that Moss-Senna class. And frankly, who is? That means he's better than 99.9999% of all drivers who've ever raced in Formula 1. And I I think, actually, it's almost his humanity that is the flaw. He's almost too human, an F1 driver, because some of these guys, in terms of their mentality almost are sort of superhuman in a way whereas Vettel always seemed like a a genuine real person they all are obviously but I think those sort of human frailties that occasionally came through the emotional moments in a way were what made Vettel that sort of special character I think Seb's the kind of person that um there's a there are different genres of Formula One fans you can you could love to hate him. You can hate to love him. Like he just ticked a lot of boxes at different points, and he's also played a lot of roles in his F1 career, from you know pantomime villain to to what he what he is now, where he is. Uh, I think actually, I think there's a the best word I can think to describe how he's been the last two years is a statesman. It's just the role that he's evolved into in Formula One. He has transcended different parts of the sport in, in, in many ways. And I mean the sport beyond just F1, so motorsport as a whole. Um, how the hell did a four-time world champion end up on Question Time? Like, like that is, that is just absurd that that happened. Uh, it, an active F1 driver on that show and holding his own, talking about issues that he cared about and not caring that people would be like, oh, you keep talking about this, you've been asked about this. And I just remember that was so good because... He kept bringing everything back towards the, the climate emergency and things that he thought could be done better there. And when he got challenged on that mid-program, he didn't let himself get bullied. He just said, well, this is what I know. And actually, I think there's some lessons within this that's relevant to the question that you've asked. And th- that's, what I, that's what I think I've ended this season and seeing him leave Formula One with just a completely different level of respect for him than I could probably have ever imagined holding for an F1 driver because it just goes beyond what he achieved on track. So I don't care whether he ends up in your first, second or third tier of great F1 drivers ever. He is someone that has been a it's been a privilege to be around for even part of his career. Even though I got the tail end and the less successful part of it, it's still been a it's still been a really, really good thing to be a part of. And something that I think we'll all look back on and just be like, it's kind of crazy that we shared a professional workplace with this guy for however long we did. I'd agree 100% with that. And adding to the question time thing, he also appeared on the front of LGBTQ plus magazine Attitude, complete with Aramco logos, which is hugely significant <laughs> as well. In his, and he's been a great ally in that regard as well. So let's leave the last word to you, Lee. How will he be remembered? Scott's touched on it there. It's almost like the the on-track stuff secondary, given everything he offered in Formula One. So how do you think we should remember him in Formula One? I think we should remember him 
as a four-time world champion because that is what has given him the platform to become the incredible human being that he has shown himself to be over the last couple of years. Again, it's about the sport. If he hadn't had that platform, then he w- we wouldn't all be sitting here talking about him now. But conversely, a lot of people come and go in Formula One and don't leave the same, the same impact that Sebastian Vettel has. I wrote the sort of farewell piece for Channel 4 a few weeks ago, and I sort of closed it off to paraphrase by saying, you know, he's a principled man. He's a family man. He's a boy who became a man and transcended Formula One. I think that's a great way to sign off on the topic of Sebastian Vettel. So thanks very much to Scott and special guest Lee McKenzie. Make sure you pick up a copy of Lee's book, Inside F1, which is available from all good bookshops and would also make a great Christmas gift, I'm sure. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's still plenty to read there during the off-season. Make sure you check out our other podcasts, including the Race F1 Tech Show and, of course, our YouTube channel. We're now well into the winter break, but there's still plenty more to come from us. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub an official partner of The Athletic.